Welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting at you in the wee hours of September 26th, as always, from my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side, ranting a little early this week as something rather urgent is happening, and I can't believe how little media coverage it is getting. As I hope you are aware, listeners, Azerbaijan, on September 19th, launched an assault on the breakaway enclave of Nagorno-Karabakh, taking the territory that had been held by ethnic Armenian separatists since 1991. Through the mediation of the Russian peacekeeping contingent stationed in the enclave, Azerbaijan and leaders of the self-declared Republic of Artsakh reached a ceasefire agreement that calls for the disbanding of the Artsakh Defense Army and presumably the de facto republic itself and the removal of Armenian military forces from the peacekeeping zone that has linked the enclave to Armenia. The military operation claimed a disputed number of lives, but a minimum of 30, including several ethnic Armenian civilians, and civilian areas of the enclave definitely came under shelling. The European Union says it will monitor implementation of the ceasefire and warns that forced displacement of the Nagorno-Karabakh Armenians will be met with a strong response, quote, unquote, a presumably empty threat that was intentionally left vague. After the taking of the enclave, Azerbaijan's president, Ilham Aliyev, promised to create a paradise, quote, unquote, for Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh, which has apparently been interpreted by them, the Armenians of the enclave, as a sardonically ironic warning. A mass exodus from the enclave to Armenia proper is now underway, convoys jamming the road through the so-called corridor to the border, At least thousands have already fled, and the Armenian government at Yerevan is warning of a mass expulsion from the enclave, with Prime Minister Nikol Pashinyan demanding that effective mechanisms of protection against ethnic cleansing be put in place, quote-unquote. Note that Russia basically brokered the surrender of the Artsakh Armenians, and after all of these years of posing as their protector, acquiesced in Azerbaijan's aggression. The Republic of Artsakh was a victim of the war in Ukraine. We'll explore the history in greater depth momentarily, but to review the events of recent years, as stated, Nagorno-Karabakh had been under the de facto control of the Republic of Artsakh since 1991, 
In September 2020, Azerbaijan launched its last assault on the enclave, precipitating a brief war that also involved Armenia. This ended in November 2020 with a Russian-brokered ceasefire, which was a clear, if not total, loss for Armenia and Artsakh. Under the deal, Armenia was to cede control of a buffer zone it had occupied since 1994 between its borders and those of Artsakh, leaving only a narrow corridor connecting the two territories to be policed by Russian peacekeepers, quote-unquote. The actual territory of Artsakh was also slightly reduced, with the town of Shusha, which had been taken by Azerbaijan, to remain under Baku's control. Immediately after the ceasefire, in scenes reminiscent of those we now witness again, there was a mass exodus of Armenians from Nagorno-Karabakh for Armenia proper, with residents abandoning their homes because they no longer felt safe, now surrounded almost completely by Azerbaijan's military forces. There was a campaign for international recognition of the Republic of Artsakh, which would presumably afford some degree of protection. And this got as far as a French Senate resolution in support of the Republic's sovereignty, but little further. Throughout all of this, Russia was the perceived backer of the Armenians, at least, while Turkey was the perceived backer of Azerbaijan, both on the basis of ethnic or religious ties, more ethnic in the case of Turkey and Azerbaijan, more religious in the case of Russia and Armenia, and historical influence spheres going back to the imperial era in Russia and Turkey before World War I. But Russia has been distracted with Ukraine, and since 2020 has actually faced protests from Armenians for failing to come to the defense of Artsakh as Azerbaijan has tightened a siege on the enclave, and in a clear message that Armenia was growing wary of Russia, just two weeks ago, Armenia held a joint military exercise with the United States on its territory, dubbed Eagle Partner 2023. Now, it was also perceived that Ukraine was tilting to Azerbaijan in this conflict, first because of the regional alliances, both de facto and de jure, Russia as the de facto defender of Armenia, and by extension Artsakh, and then there's the de jure alliance of the Collective Security Treaty Organization, CSTO, the Russian-NATO, so to speak, the Russian-led military alliance of former Soviet states. Armenia is a CSTO member. Azerbaijan is not. And secondly, because there was a perceived parallel between Artsakh and Donbass, the region of eastern Ukraine where Russian-backed separatists seized power in 2014. 
both breakaway enclaves, unilaterally declaring their own sovereignty without international recognition. But we'll be looking at both of these factors and demonstrate that the Artsakh-Donbass analogy doesn't really hold. Okay, first, to look at the regional alliances. The first big anti-Russia protest in Armenia was January 8th of this year in Armenia's second city of Giyumri, with some 65 arrested as authorities dispersed a rally outside a Russian military base. Activists were demanding that Yerevan cut ties with Moscow amid the deepening standoff with Azerbaijan over the siege of Artsakh. A live stream of the rally showed demonstrators struggling with police officers, including troops from Armenia's elite Red Berets anti-riot squad, while crowds chanted slogans calling for Armenia's withdrawal from the CSTO. The main grievance was that the Russian peacekeepers had failed to reopen the Lachin Corridor, the only access in or out of Nagorno-Karabakh, which had been closed by Azerbaijan for almost a month at that point, leaving the over 100,000 ethnic Armenians of the enclave trapped with supplies of food and medicine running low. The corridor was supposed to remain open under terms of the November 2020 ceasefire deal between Armenia and Azerbaijan, negotiated, I will note, without the participation of the Republic of Artsakh. But the corridor had been blocked since early December 2022 by Azeri activists who charged that unregulated mining operations in Nagorno-Karabakh were causing environmental damage to the territory. The activists were ostensibly demanding that Baku be allowed to inspect the illegal ore mines in the territory. Azerbaijan's authorities evidently acquiesced in the roadblocks, which persisted up until the decisive events of the past week. So I found this situation really maddening. I mean, I've always been on the side of environmental protesters who block roads to resist mining operations all over the world. And I've done on-the-scene reportage about such movements from Arizona to Bolivia and Peru. The Azeri activists blocking the Lachin Corridor, however, seem to have had a nationalist political agenda abetted by Azerbaijan's government. On the other hand, that doesn't mean there weren't unsound mining operations in Nagorno-Karabakh. As they say on Facebook, it's complicated. And again, I've been frustrated by the lack of in-depth media coverage on the situation. Reports, at least those in English, and I don't read Armenian or Azeri Turkish, didn't even mention what mineral was at issue. I'd have gone there myself to try to investigate it, but nobody was offering me a budget. Anyway, I was heartened that now both sides were on the outs with Russia, 
an increasingly predatory neo-imperialist power, acceding to popular pressure, Yerevan announced that Armenia would not be participating in the next round of annual CSTO military drills, which had actually been slated to take place in Armenian territory, as a different CSTO member hosts them each year on a rotating basis. Prime Minister Pashinyan said hosting the upcoming exercise would be, quote, inappropriate in the current situation, end quote. So his security forces put down the protest at Giyumri, but he also afterwards acceded to their demands. To an extent, did not actually withdraw from the CSTO, but effectively ceased cooperating with it. There have also been Armenian protests at the Russian consulate here in Manhattan. I saw photos of one on Facebook on May 30th, 2021, with demonstrators waving the flags of both Armenia and the Republic of Artsakh. On the other hand, in February 2022, at the start of the Ukrainian invasion, President Aryak Harut Yunyan, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, of Artsakh, publicly welcomed Russia's recognition of the self-proclaimed People's Republics of Donetsk and Luhansk in the Donbass region of Ukraine, hailing it as a victory for the right to self-determination. On the other other hand, I did not note any expressions of approval from the Artsakh leadership in September 2022, when Putin announced annexation of Donetsk and Luhansk and two other Ukrainian oblasts, in which announcement he perversely called the annexation, quote, an anti-colonial liberation movement against unipolar hegemony, end quote, and pledged that Russia will defend the annexed territory, quote, with all the means and forces at our disposal, end quote. Great. So, Orwellian propaganda calling the rebuilding of the Russian Empire an anti-colonial liberation movement and an allusion to nuclear first strike in the same breath. Way to go, Putin! Admirable chutzpah there, in its own ultra-perverse way. So, notwithstanding the assumptions of the Artsakh and Ukrainian leadership alike, That's a critical difference. Armenia never annexed Artsakh, nor was Artsakh established by Armenian state agents, as the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics were established by Putin's so-called Little Green Men. Artsakh really was an initiative of the local people on the ground. And a critical and related point Despite Putin's claims that he was protecting the people of Donbass from genocide, there was no threat of genocide against the people of Donbass. This is now a matter before the International Criminal Court at The Hague, where one of Ukraine's claims against Russia is its spurious invoking of genocide by Ukraine, 
in order to justify its own genocide against Ukraine. Another example of the Russian propaganda device that we have identified as fascist pseudo-anti-fascism. Now, obviously, the Russian-speaking people of Donbass had some real grievances against the Ukrainian government, which the little green men were able to exploit and create at least the appearance of a local separatist rebellion, particularly in the area of language rights. And I opposed the restrictions that Ukraine had placed on the public use of the Russian language, by no means an outright ban, but restrictions, basically a Ukrainian-first policy in the public sphere, seen as a corrective to the denigration and marginalization of the Ukrainian language under Soviet rule. But still, I viewed these restrictions with misgiving. There's plenty of bodegas on the Lower East Side where Spanish is spoken before English. Whatever. Let people speak whatever they want to speak. But this kind of thing hardly rises to the level of genocide. Now, after the secession in 2014, plenty of civilians in Donbass were killed by Ukrainian shelling, and plenty of civilians on the Ukrainian side of the line were killed by separatist shelling. And that's horrific. But it isn't ethnic cleansing or genocide. Whereas, as we shall see, the threat of ethnic cleansing or genocide of the Armenians of Artsakh was and is all too real. And finally, I think whatever early sympathy the Donbass separatists may have had from the local population in 2014, this quickly evaporated as the little green men and their surrogates instated their petty tyranny of the so-called People's Republics. Whereas the Republic of Artsakh has clearly continued to have popular support, and Artsakh has established much more credible democratic institutions with a multi-party system and regular periodic elections, as opposed to the controlled pseudo-elections held in the Donbass republics in 2014 and 2018. The better analogy to the Donbass is Hitler's 1938 annexation of Czechoslovakia's Sudetenland region, as we argued in our podcast of October 1st, 2022, an annexation which was again justified in the name of ethnic and linguistic ties between the region and Germany, and exaggerated claims that the Sudetenland Germans were coming under persecution. Now, this lack of coverage of the current crisis is really surreal, given how Nagorno-Karabakh has long been viewed as a potential flashpoint for global conflict. NATO member Turkey backing Azerbaijan and Russia backing Armenia, as they were also backing opposite sides in Syria, each with their own troops on the ground, Russia with the regime, Turkey with the rebels, 
it almost came to war, you may recall, when Turkish forces in Syria shot down a Russian warplane in November 2015. But a little later, the Kistan made up and divided northern Syria into influence zones on mutually agreeable terms, and Ankara sealed the deal by buying Russian S-400 missile systems in 2017, much to the discomfiture of the U.S. and other NATO members. And hardly coincidentally, this was as both Putin and Erdogan were consolidating dictatorships in their respective countries, although Putin rather more quickly and thoroughly. And Erdogan told PBS NewsHour just last week that he trusts Russia, quote, just as much as I trust the West, end quote. Now, the reason Nagorno-Karabakh has become less of a flashpoint for world war is because it's been downgraded in importance to the great powers because of the Ukraine war, which is a bigger potential flashpoint for world war. But still, note the very revealing irony. The relaxation of great power tensions over Nagorno-Karabakh was worse for the people on the ground. Not better, worse. Something to keep in mind when you hear all of this glib, paleocon, and pacifist hooey about how Ukraine has a responsibility to cede territory to Russia in the interests of world peace. God, how I hate that talk. I'll also note that Russia was arming both sides in the Armenia-Azerbaijan conflict. In October 2020, during the last war, PBS NewsHour revealed that despite Turkish support for Azerbaijan in the fighting, just under 3% of Azerbaijan's weapons come from Turkey. More than half of its weapons were imported from Russia over the past five years. A further 41% of purchases came from another U.S. ally, Israel. But Russia was the only major supplier of arms to both sides in the war. Pretty fucking cynical. And despite the U.S. military joint operations with Armenia, Washington has also definitely been playing both sides. The Biden White House has extended a waiver of Section 907 of the 1992 Freedom Support Act, which barred military assistance to Azerbaijan in light of the war then underway, the 1992 Act established terms for U.S. aid to the post-Soviet republics, and Section 907 was added at the petitioning of the Armenian-American community. It has been waived annually since 2002, ostensibly in the interest of counter-terrorism cooperation, remember what was going on in 2002, and this despite the fact that Biden, on the campaign trail in 2020, when the last war was going on, had baited Trump for waiving Section 907. Ah, politicians. Okay, so now let's go deep and examine the roots of this conflict in deep history 
and then bring it back to the present day and see how Artsakh, or Nagorno-Karabakh, has fit into the great power game, and what this has meant for the people who inhabit it. Nagorno-Karabakh, which translates as Mountain of the Black Garden in an amalgam of Russian and Turkic words, was a heartland of Armenian culture in ancient and medieval times and under the rule of Armenian kingdoms. In the 5th century, the inventor of the Armenian alphabet, Saint Mesrab Mashtots, established the first Armenian religious school at Amaras Monastery, now in Martuni district of the Republic of Artsakh, although the Republic at this moment seems to be in the process of dissolving under Azerbaijan's occupation. The Kingdom of Cilicia was the most significant of the medieval Armenian states. As was often the case in this period, in kingdoms outside the spheres of the imperial powers of the day, there seems to have been in Cilicia something of a flowering of religious esotericism that was suspicious of worldly authority, a tendency we discussed in our podcast about the Yazidis of Kurdistan and the Bogomils of Bosnia on December 31st, 2022. If I ever make it to Armenia, I'd very much like to visit the monastery of the Kotakarats in Vayots Zor province. Kotakarats meaning grass eaters, evidently a vegetarian Armenian religious order, about which I have been unable to find much information, but I'm very intrigued. I saw their reliquary of the Holy Cross of the Vegetarians, as it was labeled on display, at a special exhibit on medieval Armenia at the Metropolitan Museum of Art here in New York five years ago, and I'm particularly intrigued as a lifelong vegetarian, although I confess, not a vegan. Anyway, Turkic tribes conquered most of the Caucasus in the 13th century, and local Armenian rulers spent the following centuries in vassalage, the different Turkic and Persian states. But Armenia remained a remote mountain fastness, never under the direct rule of any of the regional empires or not for very long anyway, the Egyptian Mamluks and the great Turkic conqueror Timur Leng, or Tamerlane, each had their own brief periods of attempting to impose direct rule, but it didn't last long. This changed in the early 19th century, when the Russian Empire consumed most of the Caucasus region, and Armenia went from vassalage to the Persian Qajar dynasty, to direct rule by Moscow. Under Russian rule, Nagorno-Karabakh became a part of Elizabeth Pole Governorate, created as a buffer zone between Baku Governorate, contemporary Azerbaijan, and Erevan Governorate, contemporary Armenia, more or less. Throughout the centuries of Turkic 
Persian and Russian rule, the Armenian and Turkic communities of the Caucasus generally coexisted peacefully, often sharing the same cities and villages, including in Nagorno-Karabakh, although the Armenians remained the majority there. This began to change with the emergence of nationalism in the late 19th century, opening a cycle of mutual clashes and pogroms, including in the area of Nagorno-Karabakh during World War I, many thousands of Armenians fled to territories controlled by Russia to escape the genocide perpetrated by the Turkish Ottoman Empire that killed some 1.5 million people. Azeri, or Azerbaijani, ethnic and national identity, were emerging at about this time. I should make clear here that the Azeris are ethnically and linguistically Turks, but unlike the Turks of Turkey, they are Shiite rather than Sunni due to their long rule under Persian dynasties. But it was the Turkish Empire that now emerged as the sponsor and patron of their national aspirations. The Armenians, like the Russians, are Eastern Orthodox Christians. Indeed, they were Christianized centuries before the Russians. They are among the world's very oldest Christian communities, along with the Ethiopians and the Egyptian Copts. Although they are not Slavic, the Armenian language constitutes its own distinct branch of the Indo-European language tree. Nonetheless, the Russian Empire now emerged as protector and patron of the Armenians against the Turkish threat. But the Russian Empire was also approaching its demise. In 1918, amid the chaos of the Russian Revolution, an independent Armenian state was declared, but it was conquered by the Soviet Red Army in 1920, with territories in the west, Kars and Surmalu provinces, ceded to Turkey. A Turkish-supported Caucasian Islamic army simultaneously rose up in an attempt to seize what is now Azerbaijan, before being likewise put down by the Soviets. Nagorno-Karabakh was contested by all the warring parties, with thousands of both Armenians and Turkic Muslims, that is, contemporary Azeris, killed in reprisals. The most significant of these was the terrible massacre of certainly thousands of Armenians, although the figure is disputed, by Azeri partisans at Shusha, in March 1920. As Soviet rule was established, the Armenians of Nagorno-Karabakh hoped their region would be unified with the Armenian Soviet Socialist Republic, but Moscow decided to award it to the Azerbaijan Soviet Socialist Republic. This was part of a strategy by Joseph Stalin then the People's Commissar for Nationalities, to pit local populations against each other, solidifying their dependence on Moscow. With formal establishment of the USSR in 1922,
both the Armenian and Azerbaijan republics, along with Georgia, were merged into a Transcaucasian Socialist Federative Soviet Republic, TSFSR, but this was dissolved in 1936 and the previous borders reestablished. In a concession to Armenian aspirations to self-rule, a Nagorno-Karabakh Autonomous Oblast was created within the TSFSR in 1923 and continued to exist as an oblast within the re-established Azerbaijan Soviet Socialist Republic after 1936. But here again, Moscow's map makers complicated matters. It was with the creation of the oblast that Nagorno-Karabakh lost its common border with Armenia, making the region an enclave isolated within Azerbaijani territory, although Armenians continued to be the overwhelming majority there. With the policy of glasnost, openness, under Mikhail Gorbachev in the 1980s, the region's simmering ethnic tensions resurfaced, calls for greater autonomy by the Armenians of Nagorno-Karabakh, escalated to demands for full reunification with Armenia by 1988. Inter-ethnic clashes broke out that year with anti-Armenian riots claiming the lives of many in Baku and other Azerbaijani cities. This, in turn, sparked reprisals against Azeris in Nagorno-Karabakh and Armenia. Moscow placed Nagorno-Karabakh under martial law that winter, but violence only escalated. Azerbaijan declared independence from the USSR in October 1991 and dissolved the Nagorno-Karabakh Autonomous Oblast. Nagorno-Karabakh responded by declaring independence from Azerbaijan that December, precipitating full-scale war between Azerbaijan and Armenia. The Azeri minority was effectively cleansed from Nagorno-Karabakh during the war with the February 1992 massacre of hundreds of ethnic Azeri civilians by Armenian separatist forces at Kojali being the bloodiest episode. The war ended with a Russian-brokered ceasefire in 1994, with the newly declared Republic of Artsakh under a de facto independence recognized by no country on earth, including Armenia. The unresolved status left the territory ripe to be exploited as a pawn by both sides in the great game for the Caucasus, still being played by Russia and Turkey, as well as more distant powers, including to a degree the United States, as we have seen. A few closing things to note here. The Republic of Armenia, in September 2021, instituted proceedings against Azerbaijan at the International Court of Justice over alleged violations of the International Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination, ICERD, by the Azerbaijani authorities. 
In its application, Armenia contended that, quote, for decades, Azerbaijan has subjected Armenians to racial discrimination, end quote, including mass killings, torture, and other abuses, especially noting attacks on civilians in the war of the previous year, 2020, but also the destruction of Armenian cultural heritage, the raising of medieval monasteries and so on, in the Nakhchivan Autonomous Republic, an exclave under Azerbaijan's sovereignty, sandwiched in between Armenia and Iran, southwest of Nagorno-Karabakh and on the other side of Armenia, so to speak, another obvious potential flashpoint and another surviving consequence of wacky Soviet map-making. So, I sure wish there was more attention being paid to this conflict than there is, and my fear is that it may yet burst into the headlines if there is wholesale Azerbaijani cleansing of the Armenian population of Nagorno-Karabakh. The irony is that more attention to the situation by the world media now could help avert that outcome as Azerbaijan will be more restrained in its actions if it feels that the world is watching. So I'm trying to raise the alarm here with the small platform available to me. This has been Bill Weinberg with the Counter Vortex. Check us out online at countervortex.org. Support us on Patreon. Join the Counter Vortex. Join the resistance and rant on you next time.